Shabbat Shalom. Uh, I want to make an announcement before we get into part two of Romans chapter nine. Um, we are going to be celebrating Shavuot um, on May the 28th. We will have service, Shabbat service here on um, the 27th, but we will have the Shavuot, Shavuot excuse me, service at Riverbend Park on the 28th here in Oregon, and the check-in will be at 11 o'clock, Riverbend Park, so we'll be able to do mikvah oat and um, have a time of fellowship and celebration, and you can actually sign up online at um, TorahToTheTribes.com on the Eventbrite, and I believe the sign-up details will be on the website, so that is all coming up. Exciting as we count the Omer. So let's get ready to dive into Romans chapter 9, part 2. I believe we're around verse 8 or 9, somewhere like that. We didn't get too far into it. Before we dig into this part of Romans chapter 9, it's time to kind of take a break and think about paradigms, isn't it? Because we've been fed the paradigm that... There was the Old Testament law, then there was the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, the birth of the church, the New Testament, and grace. And with that, yes, there's thousands of denominations. We understand that the church was born in that paradigm at the resurrection the giving of the Holy Spirit, grace, peace, and life. And then we had the various birth of the denominations, Catholicism, and then later on, Protestantism. And now we have all of these offshoots, and we are here in the 21st century. And the poor Jews are back there, and they're still under the law, and maybe someday some of them will get saved. And this is the paradigm that we've been fed. A paradigm, it's a linear paradigm with the cross in the middle. And, you know, Westerners love that linear paradigm. But what if we could just step back and re-examine everything from a Tanakh, a Torah, Nevim, the prophets, um, and Ketuvim, the writings perspective, and then thread that through into the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, and actually find out that we're wrong. Would we be willing to accept Scripture on face value based upon what it says and lay aside something that obviously isn't working. It's not working having all of these denominations. It's not working having this linear mindset. And it's not bringing about the fullness of prophecy and the power of an empowered people. We have to be honest. Because we've become divorced from the context of Scripture. We've become divorced from the prophetic fulfillment that Yahweh has for his people. Because my people perish for lack of knowledge. So, throw out or lay it aside for a minute everything you think you know about the Old Testament, the law, 
grace and the church and let's see what Yahuwah has for his people from the beginning to the end of gathering in people. Does he intend to gather them into a synagogue? Well, of course not. That's for the Jews. Is it really his intent to build the church and gather in people into a New Testament church of grace? Is this what we're to believe? Or will we find something so powerful and we will see as we unfold Romans chapter 9 part 2 where we're at prophetically with the regathering of Yahuwah's people. Verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rachel also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of Yahuwah according to choice or election might stand, not of works, but of him that does the calling. It was said of her, the older boy shall serve the younger. As you can see through the writings of Paul, the Tanakh, the acronym there for Torah, Nebahim, Ketuvim, is very important. The Old Testament and what is written there is very important for his communication of what has actually happened and been accomplished by Yahushua. We have to admit that. He's always drawing us back to what has happened before to proclaim the present glory that has been accomplished by Yahushua. You cannot read Paul's writing by, without understanding his deep emphasis on the scripture that has set the foundation of what comes before is now fulfilled through the glory of Yahushua. So what is it that he's talking about when he says right here in these few verses specifically, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, the children of what family? This is the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who is Israel. That's the context. And now we're speaking about what? This speaks to two groups, not the individuals. Don't make that mistake. Not the individuals, because nowhere in the Tanakh do we find Esau serving Jacob, do we? Nowhere. So he's not talking to the individuals. Esau and Jacob. He's talking about something far greater. He's not talking about the individuals because we've read our Old Testament and nowhere in the Old Testament do we find Esau serving Jacob. Okay? But if you don't read the Old Testament, you wouldn't have a clue and you wouldn't be able to stand on that truth. And you wouldn't be able to say it with such confidence that I can say it because you haven't been there. You're wallowing around and you don't know what's gone before. Nowhere in the Old Testament did we find Esau serving Jacob. So this cannot be talking about the boys. It's got to be talking about 
he pours. And what do we find? We do find, in fact, during the reign of David, that the Edomites were subjected to Jacob, who is Israel, Jacob, Israel's rule. So we're not talking about the boys, we're talking about peoples. Very important, because if you think we're talking about you and me and my little personal faith, then you've got it wrong. It's bigger than me, and it's bigger than you. It's not about all about you and your personal Jesus. It's not about that. It's far, far bigger than that. 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. And he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom put he garrisons. And they of Edom became David's servants. And Yahuwah preserved David whosoever he went. So it's about peoples. It's the fact that the Edomites, the peoples, were subjected to Israel. So now we're going to continue on, and in verse 13, as it comes later, we're going to see love and hate. Love and hated is akin to delighted and rejected. One is delighted and the other is rejected. Yahweh absolutely delighted. What does he delight in? What is it that he delights in? There's one thing above all, the most important thing from the big from Adam all the way through to Yahusha. There's only one thing that he delights in above all. Fidelity. That's the one thing I delight above all things that my wife gives me is that we are in. A marriage covenant. The same for you, right? He's a pain in the backside sometimes, but you know what? He's got a beautiful smile and he's faithful. So you can put aside all of the other things because he's faithful. Yahweh loves fidelity above all. Everything and he delights in Jacob's fidelity because Jacob has that fidelity to the covenant. Jacob's fidelity to the covenant is what makes Yahweh delight in him above all, and his hate or his rejection of Esau is because of infidelity to the covenant. It's that simple. He despised the birthright. He despised the covenant promises that were given to Abraham. Because that whole issue at the pottage, if you read the preceding chapter, Abraham had just died. This was a wake. It was the wake of Abraham and the firstborn has the rights to stand before all the ingathering family that had traveled from far afield to render honor to Abraham's life because birthdays are not something celebrated in Scripture. In the book of Satan, the most important day is the day of your birth. But in the Bible, the most important day is the day of your death because that reflects the life that the man has lived. So Abraham is celebrated and Esau has the rights 
to hold court as the family of Abraham comes in, but it is not important to him. So he sells those rights to his son, to his brother, excuse me, Jacob, Israel, has the rights to the covenant and to hold court. And that is what we're talking about. One Yahweh loves, the other one he hates. He loves one. He is delighted in Jacob, Israel's faithfulness to the covenant. He is hating and rejected Esau's infidelity to the covenant. So this is not talking about the individuals, but as we can see now, this is going to go on to the descendants too. Does that make sense? As we begin and look into Romans verse 13, I jumped ahead a little bit there, but Yahweh's promise to Isaac and Israel, it remains true. It's irrevocable. It defies human logic, doesn't it? I mean, think about it through the whole expanse of Scripture. Everything that Israel does, I mean, my goodness, the unfaithfulness, but his faithfulness to Israel, Jacob, and the family, it defies human logic. I mean, it even baffles the prophets. I mean, Hosea has to go and marry a whore. Ezekiel, he's told to go and open a bakery and cook his baked goods over his own feces. And you thought McDonald's was bad. I mean, you'd be looking out the back and you'd like, um, why is Ronald McDonald back behind the back counter with his trousers down? I mean, really, it baffled the prophets. They didn't even understand Yahweh's logic to his faithfulness to Israel. But it's amazing. Yahweh is faithful to our agreements. He's faithful to the covenants because he loves the faithfulness that he sees through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, because he knows that he's going to bring about his purpose, which is the covenants of promise which were made in the first place. Look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. Better Jacob have I delighted and Esau I have rejected. What shall we say then? Is there right unrighteousness with Yahweh? Let it not be. For he says to Moshe, I will have chen, or mercy on whom I will have mercy, chen, the Hebrew word there, and I will have rachamin, rachamin, on whom I will have rachamin. So we're talking about Favor, chen, and rachamin, mercy. He has favor and mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now, it's very important that we understand where these words come from. Because in our King James Version, we just read through it that he has favor and mercy. Is that the translation that you have? That he has favor and mercy. Any other translations? Compassion, Compassion and favor. And favor. Which one comes first? Favor and compassion. So, chen is translated as favor, whereas rachamin is translated as mercy. Now, in the Hebrew mind, when he was speaking these words, even myself, because for over 10 years I've gone through the Torah portions, I know exactly 
because I've done it so many times. And I wasn't raised on this stuff. Whenever anyone says chen or rachamin, I know exactly what we're talking about. I know exactly where we're going. Because if there's one place in Scripture where chen and rachamin manifest themselves, I know exactly where it is. It's where? It's right here in Exodus chapter 33. And you'll all be familiar to it. Of course, it's being hidden in the cleft of the rock. So the context of what Paul is speaking here is about Israel. We've already established that. And now we're going to go and find out where does hen, hen better, and rachamin, grace or favor and mercy come from. First of all, it happened after the golden calf incident. There's your context. Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Turn with me there, and I'll work you through it using the Hebrew, and it will connect back to where we're going and give you the platform context, because the Hebrew mind knows, anyone that's familiar with the Torah portions, that if there's one place in Scripture where you see these words spoken of and explained, it's right here in Exodus chapter 33. And Moshe said unto Yahweh, Exodus 33 verse 12, see thou sayest unto me, bring up this people and thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name. And thou hast found chen, grace, another Hebrew word would be ratzon, in my sight. So now here we have that chen, another Hebrew word would be ratzon, which is translated right here in Romans chapter 9. I have found chen, ratzon, or grace, favor in my sight. Verse 12, and now verse 13. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found chen, grace or favor in thy sight, show me now thy way. And Yahushua is the way, the truth, and the light, life, excuse me, that I may know thee, that I may find chen, grace or favor in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. Interesting, the Hebrew word there is goy. And today, Judaism uses goy as a derogatory term. Oh, look at those goyim, those Gentiles. But who's a goy? Israel is a goy. The nation is a goy. It's actually flipped. Because that's the term for the nation. Israel is my goy. That's what Yahweh says. But if you try to what? Supersede Israel, replace Israel with one tribe and it's all about the Jews, or the flip side is you replace Israel and it's all about the church, you've got replacement theology. So everybody can look at the church and say, oh yeah, the Christian church replacement theology, they've tried to replace Israel. Yes, true, guilty. But also, can we look at the other side of the coin? You can't have everything being Jewish and trying to replace Israel either. Equal weights and measures. People are afraid to say that because you'll get the charge of anti-Semitism. And the cowards withdraw. 
But no, we must walk in righteousness using equal weights and measures. We continue on. We see that consider this nation, Goy is thy people. Verse 14. And he said, my presence shall go with thee. The Hebrew word there is panaim, my face. Yahusha, we have to understand this. Our Messiah is the revealed face face of Yahweh, is he not? Because he's the only way that we can see the Father because Yahushua is the revealed face, the unveiling of the Father. Does that make sense? So this is huge, this text, as we continue on. My presence, Panaim, the revealing of the face, of course, Yahushua, which is the sign of his favor, his chen, right? And I will give thee rest. Verse 15, and he said unto him, if thy presence go not with me, carry us up not hence. If Yahushua's not with me, then forget it all. It's worth nothing. It's folly. If it's not all about Yahushua, it's folly. There's no point in me going for any further. Everything falls flat on its face. Flat on its face. Now we continue on. Look at verse 16. For wherein shall it be known here that that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated. See, Yahweh's favor, Yahweh's grace enables this. It enables us to be separated. Some of you don't like being separated, but it does. His favor, his grace separates us from the unbelieving nations. It sanctifies you. It makes you holy, kadosh. I and thy people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Verse 17, and Yahweh said unto Moshe, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace, chen, in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. What is the glory? The glory is the grace, the will, the ruach. It's the whole package. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Who is all of Yahweh's goodness? That's his son. That's the whole package. Everything good, his whole goodness will pass before you, Moshe. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before thee. Yahusha. Yahweh is our salvation. This is the gospel. This is what Paul's talking about. And it is a promise of the regathering of Israel after they have just detonated the bomb of infidelity with whoring at the golden calf. When they're demor- you know when you've been caught in sin by the Holy Spirit? I know none of you have. I know when I have been caught in sin by the Holy Spirit, I literally feel demoralized. And it feels like there's no way back. Absolutely demoralized. I just want to go and jump in the river. Right? 
But then the Spirit gently what? Refreshes, restores, and brings you back. And that's what this is. This is when Israel is at their lowest. It's three, it's what? How many chapters after the golden calf breach? It's right after. They are demoralized, but Yahweh has a plan. But that plan can only happen by the full revelation of his goodness passing by you and hiding you in the broken part of the rock. And the part that you are going to be able to see Yahweh is only when you're hidden in the broken part of the rock. And who is the rock? I mean, this is huge for us to understand that when Paul mentions this, even me who didn't grow up in this biblical culture, because I've done it for so long, I knew that this was the text. Why do I have this text in front of me? It's just, it's just so right there. You talk about Rachamin and Chen, you've got to go to this text. Any Torah teacher would go to this text. Because this is the text of Rachamin and Chen, favor, Ratzon. It's all right there. So now we continue on and we find that he's going to proclaim the name of Yahweh, Yahusha, before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That reminds me of John chapter 1, verse 17. For the Torah, the, the law was given by Moses, but Chen and Emet, grace and truth, came by the one who revealed the name of Yahuwah. Yahusha, the Messiah. That's, that's um, John chapter 1, verse 17, right there. And I will show Rachamin mercy on whom I will show mercy. Verse 20, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see it and live. You can only see Yahweh's face through the revelation of his Son. Verse 21, and Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. This is reminiscent of the future prophecy of Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where we're going to be standing on the rock, the throne, and the Lamb, is it not? Verse 22, And it shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, that I will put thee in the cleft of the rock. I'll put you in a safe place, and the safe place is when you're in the broken part. When you're in the broken part of the rock, that's the safe place. And I will cover thee with my hand. You see, the hand of the rock that was broken takes the punishment. It's the hand that takes the punishment. And then I will pass by. And then I will... Look look at the language. Then I will take away my hand... This is to physically remove something. So this is talking about what? Him being risen enables you to safely view the Father. Something that is taken away, him then death being taken away enables you to safely view the Father. And thou shalt see my backward parts. Where would the punishment, the scourging be laid? On the backward parts of the rock which is broken and humbled, which you then can hide in, which gives you the full view 
of the Father, because his face is only revealed through the one that comes in his name. This is Rachamin and Chen at its ultimate zenith. And that's why Paul is using it in the New Testament. But my face shall not be seen. You see, trying to view, this is what he's trying to tell. The Jews that are returning to Rome after the edict of Claudius has lifted. Remember the context. We've got a transformed synagogue landscape in Rome because the Orthodox Jews that didn't believe in Yahushua were booted out for over a decade. And in their midst grew up new shoots of returning Israel whose faith was in Yahushua. And now they've taken over these congregations and they are Yahushua-centric congregations. But now we have returning unregenerate Jews from Jerusalem returning back to Rome after the edict of Claudius has lifted and they don't believe in the Messiah, right? And we're going to see that in Romans chapter 11. And so now Paul is communicating to them, and thou shalt see my backward parts, but my face shall not be seen. Meaning you try and view Yahuwah without the rock, Yahusha, it's dangerous and it will lead to you being broken off and burned with fire. You can no longer try and view the Father without hiding within the cleft of the rock because he's already taken the punishment on his backward parts. This is the very definition of rachamin, mercy, and chen, favor. It is not some New Testament doctrine. It's from the very, very Torah covenant. Is this amazing? It is to me. I love this. I love this. So if the Jewish people reject Yahushua, they'll be cut off from Israel's kingdom. You can't view the Father that way. You'll be cut off from Israel's kingdom. The corporate election, listen, the corporate election remains true, but corporate election does not. It does not translate over into individual election because that is accomplished through the heart of man and each man alone. Yes, the nation corporately is elected, but you being elected, that can only happen through an inward transformation of the man. You don't get a free pass because you went on a hike with the nation of Israel. And we ain't talking about that slither in the Middle East either. So, verse 16, back in our text in Romans chapter 9. But I wanted you to understand what he's drawing from and the context of what's going on in Rome is very important. And I know Greg loves this stuff, don't you? Because you've got to have the history. 
Because otherwise it doesn't make sense. Verse 16. So then, it's not within reach of him that wishes, nor of him that strives in the flesh to be Israel, but of Yahweh that shows Rachamin mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. The importance of Yahweh's name being declared throughout the whole earth is very, very important. It is. It really is. I even witnessed Yahweh's name his true name, and the son's name come off the lips of a judge this week because of what I experienced. They didn't understand what they were saying. But to me, that was all part of the restoration. Off the lips of a judge. So, We live in very interesting times. Very interesting times. As this truth goes out. But we do have a very, very kadosh, holy calling, and that is to be good stewards of this message. But I also witnessed it not being stewarded properly. Because just as in the time of Yahushua, there were zealots, passion and zeal is good. And, you know, you're all looking at me like, okay, now he's preaching to the choir. I know, I need to learn this most probably more than most, except for a couple of fellows. But um, (laughs) passion and zeal is good, but it has to be tempered with maturity and wisdom. Because we are ambassadors of Messiah and we are not cowboys of Messiah. Just going in there and woohoo! Right? And letting going off half cocked. So again, temperance. Because we are not to just go out without thinking. We must be as wise as serpents. And actually be harmless. Harmless as doves. So now we continue on in verse 18. Therefore he has rachamin on whom he will have rachamin. Of course, the Hebrew word there meaning mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he hardens the heart of those he does not choose. You might say then to me, why does he find fault with some that he does not choose, for he has resisted his will. So, I know Chuck's not here today, but he'll, he, he, he kind of gave me a little jab the other week because I just blew right by it. So we'll go through a walk through the tulip field. You know what I'm talking about, right? We go through a walk through the tulip field just because I can't get to this section of Scripture without talking about Calvinism and Armenianism. Of course, tulip 
is the Calvinistic acronym for what I will now describe. Let's talk about the five points, just briefly, just so that you, if you want to dig into this and go down the rabbit hole, you can. It's a great, great rabbit hole that you'll have to spend some time going down. But we shouldn't just accept things on face value. So let's walk through the tulip field of Calvinism. Number one, the tulip, the acronym T for total depravity. Calvinism Calvinists believe that man is in total depravity. Man has no free will. He's in total bondage to his evil nature. Total bondage to his evil nature. Man has no help, no hope, excuse me, of digging himself out of his unregenerate pit. No hope whatsoever. Only regeneration can come from Yahuwah. Yahuwah alone can only set man free. He is totally depraved. All right? Number two, tulip, unconditional election. Calvinists believe Yahuwah chose the sinner and his choice of the sinner is based upon no, no virtuous quality or response whatsoever of the sinner. It's got nothing to do with the sinner. It's not the sinner's choice. It is unconditional election. Now we're moving down through the acronym of the tulip. We're in the L, limited atonement. Calvinists believe that Messiah's death was for the elect only, and only the elect, and it secured absolutely everything necessary for salvation. So there we have limited atonement. And we'll revisit that because some Calvinists don't like the full tulip field, so they pluck off a petal. And there's a difference between five-point Calvinists and four-point Calvinists, as there is with Arminianism too. Number four, the eye of the tulip is, of course, irresistible grace. The call of the Holy Spirit, it is irresistible to the elect. You, you, you cannot deny the calling of the Holy Spirit. You have no choice. Once the Spirit calls you, it is irresistible, according to the Calvinist theology. And finally, the P of the tulip, the fifth one, is the perseverance of the saints. That the elect, they are kept, they are secure, they are preserved in the Master's hand. None in his hand shall fall to the ground. So you can see there is weight within the tulip. That's the five-point Calvinist. Now, the four-point Calvinist, they don't like number three. They don't like limited atonement. So they scratch that one out. They're not so cool with that. So you've got the difference between... Even Calvinists can't agree with one another. So now we're getting to Armenianism. Of course, we've got the five-point Armenius. Then we've got the four-point Armenius, because they have to kind of, you know, match each other. Yeah, it's kind of like 
competition. Number one, of course, we have free will. The Armenianism doctrine is free will. It differs now with the tulip. It is totally different because they believe free will. Yahweh enables the sinner to repent and believe, but he does not interfere. Yahweh doesn't interfere with man's freedom to choose good or evil. In fact, faith is man's gift to Yahuwah, it's his contribution to salvation. That's a big difference, isn't it? The Armenian believes that man's faith contribute, is his contribution to Yahuwah and is wrapped up in that salvation. So there is your free will. Number two, Armenianism, conditional election. Yahweh's choice of sinners was based upon their foreseen response. The only reason he chose you is because he knew that you would respond with a yes. So yes, there is election, but it is a conditional election. It's based upon your response. Yahweh chose you because he can see all the way because he is omnipotent, omniscient. He sees and he is everywhere. So he chose you because he knew that you would respond. That's conditional election. The sinner's choice of Messiah, not Yahweh's choice of the sinner. Does that make sense? This is important stuff. And like I say, you're welcome to go down the rabbit hole. I just want to kind of warn you where you're going to be going because these 10 points, they all have a certain amount of weight to them. But you can mix and match. (laughs) And you'll end up with your own narrow road. (laughs) So it's not that you have to choose Calvinism and Arminianism because all of them have some scriptural validity, a verse here or a verse there, and they all have some weight behind them. But you have to follow it through to its end conclusion and that ultimately is upon the individual to make that step. Number four, Arminianism, resisting the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can't regenerate somebody, according to the Armenian theology, until they believe. Now, I simply, personally, I know that ain't true. (laughs) I mean, I know that. For sure and for certain that I was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit came into me all I and then I knew that I had belief so that's my testimony and you can never take away a man's testimony even if you make him drop to his knees and put a sword upon his neck it's still his testimony so again a lot of this is your testimony my testimony when I read that <laughs> resisting the Holy Spirit came up with this stuff. But according to Armenianism, the spirit can't regenerate someone until they believe. The spirit can only draw the person who allows it. I was so, and I don't use this word very often, but I was so stupid. 
There was no way that I was, it wasn't a question of me allowing or not allowing something. I was so far gone that it had to be regeneration. Because I didn't know what was up from down, what was black from white. I was just in a snowball of hell. Thank goodness Yahweh could reach down into the pit and drag me out. So, number five, falling from grace. The sinner can lose their salvation. And of course, now we have the four-point Armenianism. They don't like the fifth one. They're not so cool with that. So they pluck that petal and they think, no, 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 no. The sinner can't lose salvation. So we've got the difference there between the five-point Calvinist, the five-point Armenianist, the four-point Calvinist, and the four-point Armenianist. But it's very important and interesting, I think, to see that this is what we have built with theology over the millennia based upon this is a very strong source text for having to actually think about this stuff. Because it is important. Would you agree? It is important. So that gives you a platform from which to launch yourself into Alice and her Wonderland experience. Just let me know when you come out of the hole. Because you could be down there for the rest of the year. But you can mix and match and then you'll be down there a lot longer. (laughs) And I've done it. And I personally have come to the conclusion that we see through a glass dimly. And that when I follow any of those to their logical conclusion, then it limits the other one. But somehow I believe by faith that Yahweh, cyclical as he is, can somehow go from the point of origin... And all the way to its logical conclusion, and somehow I don't see around the corner, because I only see through a glass dimly, that somehow he can bring it back cyclically and encompass his redemptive work upon people. So I'm no longer battle with that linear logical conclusion, because sometimes I've come to realize that human logic and reason just falls flat on its faith. Face, and it is only that the faith of the man can regenerate and take the man to the next level. So I've had to learn that through the school of hard knocks. But all ten points do have a certain weight to them, wouldn't you say? I would. Um, but they can't all be right, obviously. So I'll have to leave that up to you. Let's go into verse 20. No, no, no need to spend any more time down that hole. Oh, but man... Who are you that replies and talks back to Yahuwah? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, Why have you made me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another to dishonor, like Pharaoh was created for dishonor, we know from the scripture. What if Yahuwah, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I digress, and I'm most, I'm, I will, because it really impacts... You know, I, I am the man I am today because of the experiences that I've had along the way. And sometimes when I read these things, I get very emotionally moved. I remember a time 
I mean, this was when I was much younger. I had a really good friend. He was a really nice guy. He got caught up on, um, in, in heroin addiction. You know, we were all doing that stuff back in the day. And um, I remember visiting him, being around his house with an artist friend of mine. And he um, was very vexed, very troubled. And they showed me what they had been drawing. And they had, they had the house with the garden. And they had all of these demons. Literally, they had drawn them. They said they had seen them coming. And that they were coming for them. And they showed me this. And it, this guy was actually at the Seattle um, Art Institute. I mean, he was studying art. Phenomenal artist. And I remembered like, and whilst they were explaining to this to me, they, they were pointing out the window and they were, you know, showing that this, this was what was happening to this one guy. Anyway, the tragedy of it is that he, um, he took the artist's gun and, and um, ended his life. And the artist came back one night and there was like a, a snow angel on the bed, but it was, he'd killed himself. And the reason I say that, because I remember I had, was in relationship with these people. And now I read this, and I, 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 it just troubles me. Because I'm, I, I had walked with these men for years. One of them um, was extremely, the artist was extremely knowledgeable in Scripture. Extremely knowledgeable in Scripture. And, um, but had chosen not to walk that path, but had chosen to walk another path. But the whole background of these men was amazing. Yet I read this, that created for destruction. I have no doubt that this individual was created for destruction. But that still, all these years later, because I was right there at the very end, and I got to witness the, um, the terror of it, of these men, Literal terror as they didn't know it at the time, but the, you know, the close of their life was drawing upon this one individual. And I still, whenever I read that, it always takes me back to that. The sobering thought of how I was in the midst of such a life, yet how can I be here and is, is beyond me. Because there, in this man, no good thing dwells. But in that man, no good thing dwells. So when we come to election and sovereignty and what we've just been discussing, from my life experience, it, I go down that rabbit hole quite often because I think of the friends that I have lost over the years, many, many through suicide, overdose, and um, various other things i mean just a, a lot and it, it really impacts me and i don't mean to get emotional but i think that's important that you understand that the father has a purpose and really for us that are now regenerated and we are in the faith that is no more than rahamin and cheng but I also do believe, because I have seen hell and darkness and depravity, I know I'm secure. I do. 
And I know that he will complete the good work that he has started in me and in you. And I know that he's going to keep me secure because there is no way that I can come from the basements of doom to be where I am today because of something that is in me. There's no way. There's no way I can understand the scriptures the way I do because of something within me. It has to have been because he did it. And then he grew it. Because he is the mother. And the same for all of you. I'm using myself, but you know this is true of you too. He is the majesty of majesty, the Melech Melachim, the king of kings, is he not? Powerful, powerful to be on the other side. Remember, though, that the clay is formed from one lump, just one lump, and that lump is the seed of Jacob. Jews and non-Jews are spread throughout the whole, the whole earth. And the vessels of wrath, those vessels of wrath are the house of Israel to which Yahweh has been most long-suffering, has he not? He has been most long-suffering to the house of Israel. Look, you'll see that next in verse 25. You see, Both houses of Israel have a redeemed remnant prepared to be vessels of honor. Shifting gears, remember how we started this whole introduction to this Romans chapter 9, part 2, was the paradigm shift. The paradigm shift, is it really Old Testament, New Testament, Jews and church? It can't be. What does the Bible teach? Where was the church born would be your most important question. Can anybody tell me? Excuse me? Genesis chapter 28 is the birth of the church. Not my opinion. That's what the scripture tells us. And the birth of the church is always about Jacob, Israel. Abraham, Isaac said to Jacob, Israel, and you shall inherit the promise and you shall be a kahal in the Hebrew. The Greek word in the Septuagint used there is first reference, point of first reference, ecclesia, which is then translated throughout the New Testament. You find that word ecclesia, church, and you shall be a church Right there, Genesis chapter 28. Israel is the church. Okay, that's truth. Genesis chapter 28, Kahal Ecclesia Church. You'd study it, that's the truth. You cannot refute it. The church was born in Genesis chapter 28. The church is connected to Israel. So if we're going to be talking about the church, we cannot divorce it from Jacob Israel. But we know that Israel went a-whoring. They were infidels, infidelity. And the houses split and there was exile and dispersion. But if the church is going to be raised triumphant, glorious, then what does that mean? That that has to be a regathering of the whole church. Genesis chapter 28. So now we're going to get into this greatest mystery of the New Testament. Verse 24, we're going to use a little bit of Hebrew because we're going to have to connect it back to its origin text, which is going to be Hosea chapter 2. 
Even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the nations. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, Ami in the Hebrew, Ami, who were not my people, Loami in the Hebrew. So we've got two Hebrew words here. Ami, my people, and Loami, not my people. And the Hebrew mind's going to connect that back. Where are you going to find those words? Right in Hosea chapter 2. There's the context. So we're going to continue on. And I will call her Ruchamah. Ruchamah, who were Lo-Ruchamah. Two Hebrew words there. What does it say, Don, in your Bible? They who have mercy and they who have no mercy. Is that correct? The Hebrew words here, of course, are ruchamah and lo ruchamah. And then verse 26. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, ye are not my people, lo ami in the Hebrew, there they shall be called the children of the living Elohim. Of course, this is taking us right back to Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. The not my peoples, according to Hosea, aren't the Gentile church. It is the ten northern tribes called Israel that were taken captive by the Assyrians and dispersed into the nations, never to be found. When James was writing, were all the tribes back in the land? Or did he say to the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion? So at the writing of the book of James, they were still in dispersion. But the truth is, they're not lost. It's not the lost 10 tribes. But we will now find the context of what the true New Testament mystery of the gospel is. It is about the house of Israel, is the mystery of the New Testament that Paul is talking about right now. You cannot, listen, you cannot break the hermeneutical principle. You cannot break the hermeneutical principle that is established in the Old Testament and the prophets. You simply can't. Hosea establishes the hermeneutical principle. This cannot be talking about Christian Gentiles. Paul cannot be talking about a Christian Gentile church. It's simply impossible. You cannot change the definitions no matter what branch of theology you want to belong to. You cannot change the definitions. It breaks the hermeneutical principle established by Scripture. That's just basic Bible study, okay? Basic Bible study. But they don't teach you that because they're breaking the hermeneutical principles left, right, and center. But this is what keeps us safe from false doctrines. Keeps us safe when we establish hermeneutical principle and follow it all the way through Scripture. That's why I understand this thing. Because it's lawful rather than legal. The difference now as we get into Hosea, we are going to be talking about what? We're talking about Hosea and Gomer. We're talking about her adultery and Hosea's long-suffering and his rachamim, his mercy. 
And of course, this is Yahweh and Israel, respectively. The golden calf adultery, Israel's later divorce, and the eventual reunification. That is what this is talking about. Note the direct connection between the latter-day nations and the house of Israel or Ephraim of Hosea chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 and chapter 2 verse 23. In fact, why don't we just turn to Hosea chapter, chapter 2. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 2 because that is what Paul is referencing. In fact, you should just read through the whole book of Hosea. But for time's sake, let's go to Hosea chapter 2. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruchamah. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. The adulteries between what? Jerusalem and Tel Dan all the way from the central, all the way up north. All of those adulteries between her breasts, that's what's happened both in Judah and in Israel. But Israel I shall divorce because they doubled up on the golden calves. One wasn't enough for them, they had to go for two. Now let's go to verse 23 of Hosea. And I will sow her unto me in the earth... Israel, you're going to be scattered like seed across the whole planet. And I will have mercy upon her that has not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my Elohim. This is what Paul's quoting. Israel is going to be so scattered to the nations, it's going to take a supernatural miracle to regather her in. Supernatural. And we know what that supernatural miracle was. It was three days in the belly of the whale. Now let's turn to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. Thou hast said, thou shalt not be a priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy Elohim, I will also forget thy children. What's the context here? Thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten thy Torah of thy Elohim. What part of the Torah allowed you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? You broke the covenant. You broke the book of the covenant and you are no longer priests unto me. And we shall live. What? And I will also forget thy children. Because you broke the book of the covenant, Yahweh extends his mercy, Exodus chapter 33. We already read that, Chen and Rachamin. He's connecting all of this. I mean, this is a magnificent mind, is it not? 
because he studied under Gamliel. He's understanding this. He took three and a half years and did the whole triennial cycle in the cave of Elijah down at Mount Sinai. This guy knows what he's talking about because he got struck down on the road to Damascus because he was persecuting the saints. So then he holed up in a cave for three and a half years and he did the triennial cycle reading of the Torah. For three and a half years, he read through that whole Torah on a three and a half year cycle, which is what they were doing back in the day, to get the revelation of the book of the covenant and the book of the law paradigm shift. And now he is what? Telling you exactly what's happened. Yahusha has now established the regathering of Israel, that they who are no longer priests because they broke my law, they broke my covenant, which allowed them to be priests, but I always set up my mercy, chen and ratzon, Exodus 33, that it would always be about being hidden in the cleft of the rock, that when you fully see my face through the one who comes in my name, Yahusha, then I will return the whole house of Israel and you shall be a church of nations, Exodus chapter 28. It's a rebuilding and regathering of the whole house of Israel to be a what? Holy nation of priests. Look what he says. This is amazing stuff. Go down to Hosea chapter 6 now and verse 1. Come and let us return to Yahweh, for he hath torn. What did he tear? He tore the kingdom out of whose hands? And he gave it to another nation. Remember the garment of Yerevan, Jeroboam, and it was torn into how many pieces? Twelve pieces. Two to the south and ten to the north. And this is amazing. Come and let us return to Yahweh. The only way you're going to return is when that garment is sewed back together as a one Peace, priestly garment that is not ripped. Even if the soldiers try and cast lots for it, they'll decide not to tear that garment because it's a priestly, high priestly garment. And because it's not torn, you'll have the restoration of the Malkitzedic kingdom priesthood in Yahusha, the one who hides you in the cleft of the rock. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, For he hath torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two, now here's prophecy. After two days, a day as is a thousand years. After two thousand years, he's going to revive us. And in the millennium, we will rise up and we will what? Shall live in his sight. And that's right where we're at prophetically. We are about to enter into the third day. And no wonder we're feeling hard pressed. No wonder we're feeling crushed. And like Jacob said at the beginning of service, the wicked are getting more wicked and the righteous are but getting more righteous. But there's a polarity shift. Look at Hosea chapter um, 8 verse 1. Set the shofar or the trumpet to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of Yahweh, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my Torah. Of course, the context is they trespassed and broke the book of the covenant Torah. This is about the regathering. 
this is not about a New Testament-only church because there's a warning to that theology. And that is in, found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Turn with me there. Not everyone that saith unto me, O Master, Master, shall enter into the Malchut HaShamayim, the kingdom of heaven, but the one that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, O Master, Master, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name and done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. A nomia, a without nomia Torah. Covenant Torah. You're not in the covenant. You're not being faithful to the covenant which was given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. And they were never given the book of the law. They never saw a Levite priest. This is about the reunification of the whole house of Israel. Look what Matthew chapter 8 verse 10 says. For I am a man under authority, the centurion says, having soldiers unto me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and another, and he come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it, do that, and he doeth it. When Yahushua heard it, he marveled at this man. And he said unto them that followed, verily I say unto you, I have not found so much great emunah, faith, not so much in all of the church, Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, here's the regathering, and shall come and sit down with the Pope, no, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is Israel, in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be a great weeping and a gnashing of teeth. This is the regathering of the elect, the regathering of Israel. This is so powerful. And he connects this prophecy all the way from Hosea forward into Romans chapter 9. And now let's look at the 27th verse of Romans chapter 9. And he finishes up now. Isaiah also cries out on behalf of Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant shall be saved. So the remnant isn't Judah, but the remnant is always Jacob, Israel, regarding the prophecy of regathering. Regarding the prophecy of regathering, it's always Yaakov, Jacob, because it was established that Jacob would be the church. Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. Let's look at Romans chapter 9 verse 28. For he will finish the work and cut it short in Zadokah, righteousness, because a short work will the master Yahuwah make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the master Yahuwah Sevot had left us a surviving remnant, we would have been as Sodom and been made like Amora. Verse 30, what shall we say then? 
that the nations who followed not after the law of Zadokar, righteousness, have attained Zadokar, righteousness, even the righteousness that comes by faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. This is huge. This is talking about, in the Hebrew, the Torah of Zadokar. What's a Torah Zadik? This is connecting us back to, of course, the division of the Torah that connects us to the Malkit-Zedek covenants of promise, which is only made possible by the cleft of the rock Messiah. Linguistically, hermeneutically, that's an interesting way of saying it, um, (laughs) it all makes sense, does it not? Israel chased after it. They chased after the law of righteousness. But they never attained that law of righteousness, Torah of Zadokar, did they? Just as we have today within the Messianic movement, chasing after the Torah of Zadokar. But you can never attain it unless you understand what was agreed to and is covenant and what was imposed because of adultery. So you can chase after the Torah, but you will never attain the Torah of righteousness unless you come into the Malkitzedic book of the covenant, Torah of righteousness. You can chase it all you want. The Jews have been chasing it for 2,000 years. And if you follow that path, you'll end up Somewhere you don't want to end up with a priest or a high priest that you shouldn't be following. That's the end game result. And like I say, the righteous are getting more righteous and the wicked are getting more wicked. Look at verse 32. Why not? Because they sought it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law alone. So the works of the book of the law, membership into the community, it doesn't come by adhering to the book of the law and the cutting of the flesh, does it? That is not going to get you into the faith community. That is not the Torah of righteousness. For they stumbled at that very rock, at that very stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him, they shall not be ashamed. Praise Yahweh. Romans chapter 9, verse 2. Who is Israel? What is the regathering all about? He linguistically connects us back to Genesis 28, the birth of the church is always about Jacob, Israel, and it is about regathering in Hosea, the book of Hosea, Israel cast out into the nations and now regathered in by the work of Messiah, which is his chen, favor, and rachamin, which is all connected to that rock, that foundation cornerstone that's laid in Zion. This is truth, and this is zadachah, righteousness. To all that have an ear, let them hear what the Ruach says. But as you can see, election, 
being chosen as a vessel of honor. He is the potter and we are the clay. And we have to understand that the people that we are today is because of the experiences that have gone before and now brought us to this point. But I personally can look down at all of those ten points of Calvinism and Arminianism, and it means differently different things to me as it will for you. But there are certain things that strike me because of my life experience, and I know that I was chosen. I know that it was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that regenerated and called me. And because I heard the Spirit call, that I can now stand before you because there is no good thing in this man but Yahushua HaMashiach. And that is powerful to me. There's a lot to think about here, a lot to meditate on. It makes me sad to think of those that have been lost because they were created for dishonor. That makes me sad. And I have experienced a lot of loss in my life of good people, but they were not righteous people. And that saddens me. But I have to have have the faith to continue that I know that I was chosen and you were chosen. And we have to sometimes look back and see those that we've lost along the way. And it really does sadden us, does it not? And I've seen people that I thought were believers that I've lost along the way, lost into Judaism. They took that revolving door of the Messianic movement and they just swung right into Judaism. And they ended up denying the rock that purchased them. And that saddens me more than the guy that shoots himself on a bed with demons coming for him because they had an opportunity and they blasphemed the one who purchased them. Questions, comments, anybody at all? Ah, in the back. Um, yes, uh, Matthew, um, I, some of the Hosea um, verses, um, you didn't cover the exact verse. I know the first one was a Hosea 3, 1 to 3. What was chapter 6, uh, Hosea 6, when you're covering just now? Yes. In your notes, Hosea 6, you said you mentioned that um, about... Did I get my verses wrong? No, you said chapter 6, but we didn't hear the verse. I couldn't find it when we were looking. Go ahead. 6-1. It was 6-1. Okay. Yes, sorry. Okay. Um, we do have one question. Only one? Well, from last week. This is actually <laughs> from last week. And that was, they're trying to find the dust. You said that the, we were from the dust of the Holy of Holies. We were formed out of the dust or something of that nature, of the garden you were talking about. Oh, right. That what we, verse? Uh, well, we it that? just connects back to the first couple of chapters in Genesis and that there were three parts of the garden. There was the garden, um, the midst, the garden, the land, can't remember off the top of my head, which is akin to how the temple was set up with the structure of the temple, meaning the Kadosh HaKedoshim, the Holy of Holies, the Kadosh place, the holy place, and then the court outside. So that is uh, connected back to the Garden of Eden. Right, and that would be, they, we were taken out of that ground. Correct. Okay, all right. Uh, the next one is, um, they have some family, and uh, is it wrong to walk away from family who regret the truth? Who regret the truth or reject the truth? I think it's reject. Yeah, as I'm looking, I'm reading it. Well, who is your mother? Who is your brother? That is the question that the Messiah asked us. And at some point, you know, um, we've all had those painful, painful experiences with family members. 
And that is a path that each individual has to tread within their family and try and navigate. But at some point, um, you know, you're going to have to make a choice and, and make that stand. But it's not for me to say, but it is a stand that eventually you're going to have to make because that's what Yahweh has. I mean, he works through the families of man to call out the families of Yah. Matthew, an easy one. Why is the Bible translated from Greek in, in the New Testament, I think is what they said here. I just lost it. Why do we have Greek, not Hebrew or Aramaic so yes. much so? Um, there's many different opinions on that. I mean, we just have to acknowledge we have what we have. We have, what, 5,000, close to 5,000 manuscripts um, that are all within, what, 98.7% of one another. You have to understand, yeah, the context, the, 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 um, the world, the Bible world of the first century, if you wanted to get information out to the nations, then that was the language of the nations from Alexandria all the way up into the provinces of Rome and Galut and Gaal. You were going to use whatever language that you could get it out. If we were going to go over, you know, just like today, we've got the American Bible Society trying to translate into Chinese and many of those languages. I mean, it's just a question of trying to disseminate the information to a broadest, broadest People And that was what it was. If you wanted to stick with the Hebrew, then you were really um, um, keeping yourself within the region of um, the um, Middle East and specifically Judea at the time. And maybe you'd get out a little bit in the dispersion, but you wouldn't have the broad reach. So I just have to believe that that was the way that that it was communicated out. And myself, quite honestly, because of the Septuagint, we have such weightiness. It was translated by 70 in excess, some say 72 rabbis, 210 years before the Common Era. And they were the best Jewish rabbis of the time, the top scholars of the time. So now by it being in the Greek in the New Testament, to be able to connect it back to the um, Tanakh, the Old Testament, and then find the corresponding Hebrew words, it's really solid. That's why I'm not a fan of the Masoretic text, because it's new Hebrew. It's new Hebrew. And I would rather go from the Greek to the Greek to the Old Hebrew than just bounce in the New Hebrew and read a modern Torah scroll in the New Hebrew. Because the Masoretic text has been tampered with 134 times by the Nazarites to deduct all those passages that speak about Yahusha. It is not solid. And Aramaic... I mean, some people like the Aramaic. I enjoy sometimes reading it. I have um, some uh, books at home. But it's very hard to pin down. You have to be honest. It's very hard to pin down. 
There's so many different variants and ideas and translations that it's just extremely hard to pin down historically. Whereas with the Greek, I mean, it's, it's so... I mean, any, any um, serious scholarly work that is reputable in the New Testament, it's always going to be used in the Greek. If it's going to be seriously put under peer review, it's not going to be Aramaic. It's not going to be Hebrew or Hebraic or um, the Shem Tov Matthew. Not, it will not survive peer review. So for me, that's the world of Bible study I live in. I mean, I like to mess around with all this, like, this new ideas, but at the end of the day, you have to be able to withstand that peer review, I think, when it comes to translations. That's just me. Anything else? Sorry, I didn't mean to go on there. Yes, they do have a question about, um, you heard this judge um, say Yahuwah this week. I think that's a, uh, a conversation for offline. Yes, in the back, Mallory. Let's have a... My, Mallory, are you going to sing for us? Oh, wow, fun. Okay. Um, so... I um, I don't know a whole lot about this stuff, but I was a little confused when we were in Romans around, like, verse 22 through 24. And um, when it talks about he has this power to, um, let's see, endured with much patience vessels of wrath designed for destruction. So you were talking also about the Calvinism and the other big, long A word, mm -hmm. and their limited atonement and conditional atonement. So is it that we believe with going through the Bible in a limited atonement if God is making specific people for, what was it, for destruction? Mm -hmm. So are, are certain people just destined for hell? Well, this is, this is the question. You see, that's the question within, within um, students of Scripture that what the Calvinistic perspective is limited atonement where Messiah's death was for the elect, for the elect only, but his death did secure everything for those elect. So that's saying that, yes, some are chosen for glory and others then, they are vessels that are chosen for destruction. So some people believe that based upon their study of the Bible. And there is scriptural weight to that theology. That's the Calvinist theology. But the Armenian theology says, no, I don't believe that at all. And then they would go with universal, um, excuse me, um, conditional election, where, again, there is a choice, but Yahweh's choice of sinners is based upon their foreseen response. Because the sinner would choose, that's why they're chosen. So it's more of the, the sinner has a response to election. It's the sinner's choice of Messiah rather than Yahweh choosing the sinner. So there's the difference there. But again, it's still an election. Still an election 
It's just whether it's conditional or um, unlimited. So was Pharaoh, he would have just said no, and so that's why he was using that? So, yeah, cho- Pharaoh was chosen for destruction. He was a vessel of dishonor. In fact, the interesting thing with Pharaoh is, um, you know, Pharaoh did repent. Pharaoh confessed his sin. He confessed his sin. He repented. But whatever was within his heart was just strengthened. He was given over to what was in his heart. And that's what the Father does. Whatever is in you will just be strengthened. So Pharaoh's desire was for his own way, and that was eventually strengthened or hardened, it says, strengthened more and more until finally he was destroyed. And that's the whole idea of the empowerment of grace. Don't take your grace from me. Don't take that power to draw me to you where he removed or Pharaoh didn't have any grace at all on him and he just did what came natural to him. He did what came natural. He was strengthened strengthened each and every time one of those plagues passed. What was in him was strengthened which was his own sinful desires. So could it be considered that Pharaoh simply, um, oh shoot, I just had the word. Um, he just took whatever was in his heart and made it stronger. He didn't necessarily make Pharaoh more on the path for destruction. He just gave him more of what Pharaoh already had. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Weighty things to consider, not. Yes. Someone has said, if you're going to preach judgment, always do it with a tear in your eye. You did that tonight. Oh, praise Yah. I mean, it really does. uh, It is very sobering, is it not? It moves me greatly when I get into the scriptures and, and think of those things. Because, my goodness, it's all about his chen and rachamin, his favor and his grace. But we have to understand the definitions because ultimately we're all under his mercy, the withholding of just judgment deserved. But his grace empowers me to keep his commands. And that's the beautiful thing. Abba, we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your holiness. And Abba, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We pray your brakot, your blessing upon your people. B'Shem Yahushua HaMashiach. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right.